0: Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damien Garde, recording from an undisclosed location that is unfortunately very echoey, so I want to apologize for that at the outset.
1: I'm Adam Feuerstein, coming to you from STAT's worldwide headquarters in
0: Boston. Rebecca Robbins will not be joining us as she is on assignment, but she will be back next week.
1: It's Thursday, June 27th, and here's what's on the docket this week. So we'll start big with a
0: $63 billion Pharma mega merger. You may have heard about the fact that AbbVie is buying Allergan. We will break down this mammoth deal and talk about what it all means.
1: Next, we're going to revisit Alzheimer's disease. Our colleague Sharon Begley joins us to explain how a powerful cabal of scientists, unified by the fervent belief in a single theory, came to control the direction and funding of research for decades. A small drug maker based in Cleveland, Ohio, has been using the
0: heartwarming story of a stroke survivor to promote the development of its experimental stem cell therapy. But as Adam reported this week, the company's publicity campaign has also obscured the treatment's clinical trial
1: failures. That could be unethical, it could be misleading. Either way, we'll dig into the controversy. And finally, we'll embark on a lightning round, which means quick takes on the latest CRISPR patent drama, the Democratic presidential debates, and a surprisingly aggressive arm of the Trump administration. But first, a word about StatPlus. Enjoying the Read Out Loud? You can get more exclusive coverage from Adam, Rebecca, Damien, and others at Stat with a StatPlus subscription. StatPlus delivers daily, market-moving coverage of biotech, pharma, and the life sciences. By subscribing today, you'll get access to exclusive stories from our award-winning team every day. And as a special thanks to you, our podcast listener, Subscribe to StatPlus now and enjoy 10% off your first year by using the code POD, P-O-D. We hope you enjoy StatPlus, and thanks for being a Readout Loud listener.
0: So by far the biggest news this week was Abvi's decision to buy Allergan for $63 billion, or said a different way, Allergan's decision to sell itself for $63 billion.
1: Yeah, there are lots and lots of implications of this deal, and we're going to get into those. But first, let's start with the headline personality here, and that is Allergan CEO Brent Saunders. Right. So our colleague, Matt Herper, wrote a story on what this deal means for
0: Saunders, and and we recommend that you read that on statnews.com. But the gist is basically this. Brent made his name uh, as this sort of thoughtful disruptor who came into pharma with a new approach on running a big drug company, And Allergan, as it exists today, was his magnum opus. Once upon a time, it was worth about $120 billion based on, you know, faith in the strategy that he employed. And that's why this week's decision to sell the company for nearly half that sum has been perceived as a failure of Brent's ideology. Is that, Adam, do you think that's fair?
1: You know, I, I kind of sort of think about this in, sort of in cinematic terms. And I think, like, as we said, you know, Brent was kind of this rising star of pharma, right? You know, he was the ultimate deal maker who kind of created Allergan through, you know, a series of, of high profile deals. And he had this idea that he was going to sort of basically kind of create a new kind of pharma company. And yeah, like you said, it did work. Over time, the stock price fell, their R&D efforts collapsed, and, and I, you kind of sort of see this deal with Avi as kind of an admission of defeat, I think. So again, in cinematic terms, he's definitely sort of on the downslope right now. And it's interesting to kind of pick
0: apart what the prevailing theory Brent brought in was. I think sometimes it was perceived as he hated the concept of of discovering new drugs and of the sort of basic science that pharma companies pat themselves on the back for so often and rather approached it more like a hedge fund manager accumulating assets. But that's not exactly fair, uh, I think, to Brent. It was more, I mean, he described it as growth pharma, this sort of middle road between the kind of, um, well, now castigated approach of companies like Valiant Pharmaceuticals, and then, you know, between the middle road, I suppose, between Valiant and a company like, you know, for example, Biogen, that is going to spend a pretty considerable amount of money on on R&D. And, uh, you know, there's sort of a sliding door situation here because, if you look back in 2015, which is when Allergan had that 120 billion dollar valuation I talked about, he signed Brent signed a deal to sell the company to Pfizer for 160 billion dollars. So just like the ultimate like zenith of his idea, and that was going to happen until the Treasury Department changed its rules because of Irish domiciling and things we don't have to get into. But basically, if that change doesn't happen, then Brent remains the heir apparent. He remains the you know arguable Pfizer CEO in waiting, and arguably becoming CEO of Pfizer is the brass ring for anyone who seeks to become a very powerful person in the pharmaceutical industry.
1: That's all true and then I think what, you know, if you look at sort of what happened after that, Allergan went out and they did a series of acquisitions to kind of bolster their pipeline. And like you're right, they weren't doing sort of the fundamental ground up research that a lot of pharma and biotech companies do, but they were coming and they were buying assets, they were buying smaller biotech companies to kind of Build this pipeline, but over time, a lot of that stuff wasn't working. You know, the clinical trials were failing, and and at the end of the day, what was left was essentially the aesthetics business. You know, and Botox, and you know, Avi basically admitted that they were essentially going to just slash the R and D budget or the R and D pipeline that Allergan had put together.
0: AbbVie is an interesting situation of its own. The company markets Humira, which is the best selling drug in the universe, but it will eventually face biosimilar competition in the United States. In fact, that's coming, um, I think, in the next four years. And so that means it needs a way to grow beyond the, the glory days of Humira. And Allergan at $63 billion apparently looked like a winning idea. But the reaction on the AbbVie side hasn't exactly been universally positive, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the way to look at this deal is from from the Abvi perspective is it's financial engineering, right? What what Botox gives them is cash flow. It gives them essentially a a fairly protected product that's not going to be impinged by generics or biosimilars or anything like that for years and years, if ever. So it gives them the the cash flow that they need to maybe ultimately at the end of the road down, down the line, maybe buy other biotech companies or sort of bolster their pipeline in other ways. So ultimately, you know, you add Botox into the Abby mix and it diversifies away the the concern that Hume, you know, Humira, this gigantic block, mega blockbuster cash cow, which is facing biosimilar competition, you know that 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 sort of gets diminished. Um, you know, is that a good deal? I mean, you know, from a from from a financial standpoint, I guess yeah, you can make a, a case that this is this is a good deal. Is it the most imaginative sort of deal? Probably not.
0: So circling back to
1: where we started with Brent Saunders, who has been,
0: um, you know, a magnetic force in, in pharma and one of the more open and accessible um, CEOs. Even if you disagree with the things he says, with his openness and his uh, accessibility, he's probably not going away. Uh, he's a fairly young guy. Um, I think he's going to have a board seat on the combined company if and when this deal closes. But. I do think you know we haven't seen the last of Brent Saunders and his his approach to pharmaceutical development. I don't think that he thinks of himself as being defeated by this.
1: And if nothing else, he'll have more time to post on Instagram.
0: Yeah, a great follow on Instagram for those of you looking to diversify your uh, your streams there. For three decades, the most influential researchers in Alzheimer's disease have insisted that the best way to combat the disease is by targeting toxic plaques called beta-amyloid. It probably goes without saying that no amyloid treatment has actually succeeded in clinical trials in that time.
1: But the the behind-the-scenes story is a bit more complicated. Amyloid hegemony is not the product of scientific consensus, but rather the effect of stifling research, withholding funding, and restricting just who gets to speak at major conferences.
0: Stats Sharon Begley wrote an essential story this week about how a cabal of powerful scientists spent years steering Alzheimer's research toward amyloid at the cost of other ideas. And
1: she joins us now to talk about it. Sharon, thanks for coming back to the podcast.
2: Thank you, Damien.
1: So Sharon, set the stage for us. Uh, How did the amyloid hypothesis come to dominate Alzheimer's
2: research? In a very logical way. Um, Back in 1906, when Dr. Alzheimer first identified this disease in a woman in her 50s, which is fairly young, um, after her death, he analyzed her brain, and one of the telltale signs that he found was indeed these sticky protein fragments called peptides which turned out to be made out of amyloid, between her brain neurons. And ever since, that has been considered a key hallmark of the disease. And the thinking has been, if you get rid of this thing, which seems to be the signature of the disease, then you'll cure the disease. So that explains how it all got rolling. But then, you know, as you mentioned in your story, if
0: you cut to the 2000s or or, or more recent time, when treatments targeting amyloid consistently didn't actually slow cognitive decline in Alzheimer's patients, What made the idea so persistent then in the face of so much failure?
2: So... Absolutely. There's been more evidence for the amyloid model since 1906, including that the first genes that were identified as raising the risk of the disease, um, especially in inherited cases in younger people, turned out to have to do with amyloid. So, you know, genetics, um, especially as a an argument, is very, very powerful. And when scientists see that a gene for something seems to cause the disease, they seize on it and say, okay, if we reverse that thing, if we reverse what that gene does, then we'll cure the disease. So, again, um, there has been very powerful evidence, including in mice. Um, you know, famously, or some people would say infamously, if you get rid of amyloid in mice that have been given human Alzheimer's genes, the mice are fixed. The mice's memory comes back. Unfortunately, it turns out that what works in mice abysmally fails in people.
1: So, Sharon, in your story, you talk to a lot of uh... Alzheimer's researchers who felt like their non-amyloid-based ideas were railroaded by these powerful interests. The word that you use in the story, and I think the powerful word you use is cabal. What kind of tactics did this so-called amyloid cabal use?
2: So just an asterisk there, cabal was actually a word that um, three scientists used to me. So uh, Sharon did not make that up. Um, So what happened was that researchers who had ideas outside the amyloid mainstream not uniformly, but in so many cases, um, were denied funding by both federal funding agencies in this country, obviously the National Institutes of Health, but also by foundations. Um, they had a really tough time getting their papers into the top journals. They were able to publish eventually, but in you know, sort of second, third tier journals where, you know, if your paper appears there, then what that says to the rest of the research community in a given field is, you know, this might be sort of interesting, it's okay. But it's not, you know, pow, kaboom, really important research. Um, And also, speaking slots at meetings. Um, That's where the research community, again, in a given field, goes to hear what is considered the most up-to-date, you know, cutting-edge research. And who is chosen to be a speaker as opposed to standing in front of a poster. Um, That, again, is considered a sign, uh, sort of the the imprimatur, the, the vote of confidence of those in the know of what is important and what counts. And people who had ideas other than amyloid, and just to quickly reel them off, you know, infectious agents, overactive immune cells in the brain, oxidative stress, I mean, the list goes on. Um, People who were pursuing those avenues of research just got shut down time and again.
0: And so what does the amyloid cognoscenti, the the accused cabal, what do they have to say about, you know, this accusation that they've sort of thwarted progress?
2: So, none of them are part of any cabal, they assured us. So, that's all good. Um, However, one of the scientists who has been most associated with the amyloid hypothesis, um, Dr. Dennis Zelko of Harvard, told me that, um, you know, this was not a concerted effort. As we say in the story, this was not some nefarious, you know, organized effort to to make sure that we never have an Alzheimer's cure. Um, But he acknowledged that if he and others who controlled the journals and the funding and the speaking slots at meetings, if they had been more open to other ideas, we're talking about back in the 90s to say nothing of in the last decade, then yes, there's a very good chance that we would be further along in efforts to treat or even cure this horrible illness.
1: So Sharon, that brings up sort of an impossible question, but but where do some of these non-amyloid researchers think the field of research would be if not for these stymieing efforts that you described?
2: Well, just to give you a couple of practical examples, now we do have compounds that do something other than try to get rid of amyloid in clinical trials. So things are definitely getting better, and maybe someday there will be success. Um, But the argument, so we've been talking about mostly academic researchers, but I also talked to a number of scientists who are in biotechs and who had been in pharma, and when they tried to get their companies going, um, they just were not able to get either uh, VC funding, buy-in, you know, uh, cooperation, uh, partnerships with pharma companies. So, you know, now that those clinical trials are finally underway, they could have been underway 5 even 10 years ago. They very well may not work since nothing in this disease has, but at least we would know more and you know, you have to hope that eventually something will work. So people said that we would be probably 10 years further along than we are now.
0: So, Sharon, one of the reasons you went after this story at this time was the failure of a biogen drug called Aducanumab, which was widely considered to be I think the best hope for an amyloid-targeting therapy, and in March we learned that uh, that it didn't work, at least in, the, in two large clinical trials. So now that we're in kind of a post aducanumab world, are more scientists finally ready to maybe move on from amyloid or expand their thinking at the very least?
2: The emerging idea is that absolutely amyloid matters, but getting rid of it and doing only that is it's almost certainly not going to help. And that's because once the amyloid plaques appear in the brain, there has been widespread death of brain neurons, the destruction of synapses, and getting rid of amyloid doesn't bring those back. I mean, the, the analogy that people kept using with me was that the amyloid is very likely the gravestone and not the assassin. So if you get rid of the gravestone of the, you know, the, the dead neurons and the vanished synapses, that doesn't bring them back, um, you know, any more than doing so in a cemetery resurrects dead bodies. Um, So what people are doing now is going after um, multiple targets in the brain. Again, something that restores or preserves synapses, something that reduces oxidative stress, that increases oxygenation. Um, There are a number of things. And as I said, um, if you look at the list of clinical trials for Alzheimer's disease, it is really encouraging um, that there are so many approaches finally, finally, finally being used.
1: So Adam, who is Sharon Thomas? So Sharon Thomas uh, lives in Oregon. And one night back in 2013, she suffered a debilitating stroke. She was basically told that she may have to spend the rest of her life in a nursing home. She couldn't walk. She couldn't uh, speak. She was having difficulty swallowing. But then she entered a clinical trial where she was infused with an experimental treatment that uh, involved uh, some stem cells. And eight days later, uh, she walked out of the hospital. She wasn't fully recovered, but she was on her way.
0: And so how did you hear about
1: this story? Yeah, well, this is kind of where the, it's the interesting twist of the story. We had ne- I had never heard of Sharon Thomas before, but we had actually here uh, got a pitch from a PR person who pitched uh, Sharon Thomas and the CEO of the company that was developing those stem cells to be guests of the Read Out Loud. So, yeah, the company in question is called AtherSys. And, you know, that all
0: sounds really interesting and maybe like a wonderful podcast segment, which obviously we are currently taping. But there was something important missing from that pitch email from AtherSys, right?
1: Yeah, there was. So, you know, we get this pitch and I uh, it's forwarded to me and um, it rings a bell because I actually had written about Athercis, uh years ago. And what's amazing is, you know, again, this story of uh, this story of the of the recovery of Sharon Thomas from her stroke is a heartwarming story. It, it's it's very positive, obviously. But the thing that was missing was the fact that the clinical trial that she had enrolled in actually failed. That clinical trial showed that the stem cell treatment uh, that Attheresis is developing was no better than placebo.
0: So that would seem like something important to disclose, but. Athrasis is not the first drug maker to rely on a patient recovery story to,
1: to tout itself. So what do you think makes this case different? Yeah. So, you know, when, when we started looking into this, you know, we found that you can actually find Sharon Thomas' story kind of all over the internet. Um, there's videos that have been posted about her story. Newspapers have written stories about her. And none of the stories mention the fact that, you know, again, that the clinical trial that she had enrolled in had failed. Um, Yeah, that's that's obviously some important information. So as as you said, Damien, you know, atheroscis is not the first drug maker, you know, again to rely on a patient recovery story, but I think here what's different is that you know the company A is not telling the full story it's not telling the story of the fact that the clinical trial was in, had a negative outcome. and also you know it kind of gets tied up into this whole idea of stem cells as being having these sort of magical healing properties um, which you know have not really borne out in clinical trials and and in fact, what we've seen now uh, unfortunately is companies sort of marketing unproven stem cell therapy Therapies to patients, um, you know, and, and that's led to some FDA crackdowns. And to be clear, you know, atherocyst is not trying to peddle these stem cells to patients directly. You know, they're actually treating this like a drug and they're, going through the clinical trial process to get this approved by the FDA and other regulators. Uh, but again, at the same time, you know, what, what we found was, is, you know, sort of by pitching themselves or using this, this stroke recovery story, you know, they definitely are trying to kind of at least align themselves with this, you know, this idea that stem cells have these magical healing properties.
0: So as you mentioned at the outset, it was Ather's PR firm that reached out to Stat trying to get Thomas and the company's CEO booked on this podcast. How did you respond to that offer at the time?
1: I told them that I'd love to have them on the podcast, um, but I also you know, asked them questions about why you know, they had sort of omitted this information about the negative clinical trials. And when they responded back to me, they told me that Sharon Thomas and the CEO of AtherSys were no longer available to speak to us. So the lesson I suppose there is to be careful what you wish for. That's true. Also, I would say it's hard to
0: BS the read out loud crew. <laughs> Sounds like a challenge.
1: All right, Damien. let's get started with another lightning round. Uh, Our first item is yet another CRISPR patent battle.
0: Yes, everyone's favorite legalistic saga has made a return. Uh, This week, as uh, Sharon Begley reported in Stat, the U.S. Patent Office basically found that some of the CRISPR patents awarded to the Broad and that the Broad had seemingly succeeded in defending in a prior case did infringe... Some uh, University of California Berkeley patents and basically reopened the whole thing in what kind of forces us to once again pay attention to the fight between these institutions.
1: I am not smart enough to understand all of the intricacies here and and who who infringes upon what. The only certainty here is that the lawyers win. Absolutely. I mean, even
0: reading you know the the experts quoted in various stories is there seem to be just sort of a sigh and an eye roll and a we will probably be litigating this in some way until we are all in the grave. But uh, yeah, it
1: does sound like billable hours. All right, next up, uh, presidential debates. Damien, did you watch uh, Wednesday night's first Democratic presidential debate? No,
0: I have been trying to respect myself more in 2019, but I did read coverage of it, uh, including um, uh, Lev Fasher, our own Lev Fasher's coverage, which you can read on statnews.com. And the thing that, you know, he was listening for, and I think a lot of us were curious about is, would the drug industry get mention, um, or would it get kind of shine in this debate? And the answer is yes, very much so. It was resoundingly castigated by uh, candidates who are polling well and candidates who I had never heard of until last night, because again, um, self-respect. But I think that, you know, it's, it's not surprising, um, but it's a sign that, uh, you know, this is going to, it, it's a winning strategy in the minds of these people and their consultants. If you go after the drug industry, you might be able to Rise above the 0.01 percent that you're polling at, or whatever it is for the uh, 74 people running for the Democratic nomination.
1: Yeah, I think it's safe to say that pharma, like the media, are the quote enemy of the people in the upcoming presidential election.
0: So at least we have that in common. So another thing we learned this week is that Biogen. Well, we mentioned before the uh, the failure of Biogen's Alzheimer's treatment, aducanumab. A lot of people were holding out hope that Biogen would present the detailed results of the two failed trials at the AAIC conference, which is the biggest Alzheimer's conference uh, in this country, which is coming up next month, what we learned is that Biogen said it's just not ready.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a little bit of surprise that you know we're not seeing these data at that conference. It's a high profile meeting. And so at some point, Biogen is going to have to present those data. Um, I- I'm sure they're sort of going through things and, and and want to present it in a thoughtful way, but uh, you know, that would have been a good venue. And lastly, Damien, it seems like the antitrust regulators in the government are quite busy these days. That's true. So we don't often talk about the FTC,
0: but they've been making waves in the drug industry for this past year. Um, The most recent thing was that Bristol-Myers Squibb, which which, as you mentioned earlier in the podcast, is is acquiring Celgene for $74 billion. The FTC is apparently forcing them to sell off uh, a treatment for psoriasis that belongs to Celgene because they have an in-development treatment of their own.
1: Right. And that comes... uh, really on the heels of what seems to be like a very long delay in the closing of a deal between Roche and a small biotech company called Spark.
0: Yeah. And so, you know, with three marking a trend, there's also a a pending deal between Illumina and Pacific Biosciences on the sequencing side. And so that, you know, occurred to us that like it does seem like that the, you know, the Trump administration, FTC, is being a little more vigilant or arguably more stringent on pharma than, uh, than we've seen from past administrations. And it turns out they kind of came in with that with that promise. Our colleague, uh, Aaron Roshan wrote a story last year about what was then the incoming leadership of the FTC. And they said, basically, on the record, we want to take a hard look at drug prices, and we want to take a hard look at antitrust issues with mergers and acquisitions um, in the drug industry. So, you know, that we were just spending all that time talking about AbbVie and Allergan. I wouldn't be shocked to see some anti-competitive considerations come into play there. And, you know, in the long term, this could become a thing that kind of weighs on the minds of companies in the future when deciding whether to buy something.
1: So that does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Alex Hogan, who produced this week's episode. Matthew Orr and Alyssa Ambrose are our senior producers, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And a reminder that we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, which pharma
0: CEOs we should follow on Instagram. You can do all of that by sending us an email to readoutloud at statnews.com.
1: And if you like what we do, leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcast.